We continue, Lord, this prayer, asking that you'd open the word to our understanding. By the Spirit of God, teach, instruct, convict, and comfort. Lord, we ask that you would do in our time in the text of 1 Corinthians 9 what it is that you desire to accomplish. Work in each of our hearts. Draw us to Christ. Draw those who know him not to the sacrifice that he has made, laying down his rights for the love of his people. Lord, I pray that you would work within our congregation today. Grow us, mature us, give us endurance, the desire to plow through the text, to understand it, to grow in its light. We trust you. We trust you in this endeavor, praying for your blessing upon our time together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. know your rights. How often and in varied ways do we hear that counsel in our society. Individual rights are so vital to our world. Knowing our rights will protect us from those who would take advantage of us, from those who would harm us. And knowing our rights will aid our pursuit of prosperity. But the individual rights pendulum has certainly swung very far and wide, has it not? We routinely witness these days the rights of a single individual defended to the detriment of entire industries, municipalities, businesses, schools, teams, and clubs. So wild-eyed is the passion to protect individual rights that we risk all manner of harm to society, and all manner of harm to society's institutions. Well, living as we do in such a world that's so radically calibrated to individual rights, this rubs off on every one of us. We are indoctrinated to believe that knowing our rights and fighting for our rights is a virtue. Believer, in this world in which we live, let us never forget that we were rescued by a Savior who sacrificed his rights for our redemption. Endowed with unbounded glories, God the Son laid aside his renown as God to die in the place of sinners, suffering God's wrath against us. He did this at ultimate cost to himself, and he did this at no cost to us. It is vital that we grasp the significance of living between these two realities as we do. On one hand, we inhabit a world of rights and privileges. It's not always wrong, but that's a world in which we live. We're, We're taught to think in that way. And then on the other hand, we live in fellowship with a Savior who laid down his rights to redeem us. Indeed, our love for Christ then is often revealed in the rights that we are willing to sacrifice in the interest of his cause. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As the Apostle Paul defends his ministry to the Corinthian church, a church that was tracking in a very different direction than the way that Paul lays out here and the way that he lived before them. Let's remember that chapters 8 through 10 function as a single unit. As we try to reconstruct the context of the letter, Paul apparently called the Corinthians to stop eating meals at pagan temples. 
because it identified them with the false worship at those temples. That's the conclusion he'll come to in chapter 10. He takes a long time to get there. And that indicates to us that there's a number of problems that he's working through as he gets back to that instruction not to identify with false gods by eating at these temples. Seems that the Corinthians came back at him with some theological arguments. Idols are nothing. I agree, says Paul. But then they began to question his apostleship. It was shocking to them to think that they not eat at temples. That was the restaurants of the day, and that's where people gathered for birthday parties and all types of meetings and the like. And so it seems that they began to not only reject Paul's command, but to question whether or not he had the authority to even issue it in the first place. Now he's going to get back to that point, as I mentioned in chapter 10, but he spends an awful lot of time getting to that conclusion as he tries to draw his hearers along. There's some significant tension between him and this church. And so he starts off with, in a sense, where they agree. Chapter 8. Yes, eating meat offered to idols is fine. Meat sacrifices are offered to gods who don't exist, so the meat is no different than any other meat. But you're missing a piece. You need to consider the conscience of others. There might be believers who look at that as indeed offered to idols, even though they may not be thinking clearly and theologically. Their conscience is harmed by your eating and so think about them put them before yourself in your consideration as he comes to chapter 9 now Paul provides an example of how believers should be thinking as he does setting aside his rights in this context but he also defends his apostolic authority and thus the legitimacy of the directions that he has given to them and we can be relatively confident that the struggle between Paul and the Corinthian church was something along these lines. We bring in not only temples and the meat that was eaten there and the meat that was sold in markets and the like, but we come out of a culture here of what's referred to as the patron-client culture. Throughout the Roman world, patrons stepped forward showing their wealth by supporting others. And one of the primary applications of that idea was supporting traveling teachers. So they took great pride in paying for a traveling teacher. The problem was that whenever patrons put down money to support a teacher, those traveling philosophers, guess what? They kind of like to say what that patron wanted to hear. And operating in this cultural context, then, it seems that the Corinthian church was insisting on patronizing Paul, that they would support him financially. Paul refused to receive that support. That will become clear in the text before us today. Because it violated a ministry strategy. We'll get back to that point. Keep it in mind. We'll return to it. But Paul's refusal to receive their patronage offended the Corinthians. And it even led them to wonder, I don't even know if he gets it. I don't know if he's actually an apostle. He has the right to this pay. 
he should receive this pay. If he's legitimate, if he's really the man that he says that he is, this is how he should respond. Misses us, we don't understand this context, but that's what's going on between them. So in 8.13, Paul addresses the issue of eating meat offered to idols. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. They were insisting on eating this meat against his counsel of doing so at the pagan temples, not the marketplace, not in private homes, but in the temples. But he brings up this issue that they need to be conscious of one another's consciences. I will never eat if doing so causes a believer to sin against his or her conscience. Love for those for whom Christ died rises to the top in chapter 8. But from that discussion now, Paul's going to get further into the weeds on this trouble between them and his authority as an apostle of Christ. And we'll see this throughout the passage as far as we take it here today. In verse 1, he says, then out of that context, I will not cause a brother to stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Now many argue that Paul is working in chapter 9 only to set an example. But this is a pretty strange way to start setting an example as he's clearly giving a defense, verse 3. Now it's true that he's setting an example for them as he sets down his own rights. But I'm persuaded there's more going on here. Am I not an apostle? That could mean... Look at my example. Even as an apostle, I don't insist on my rights. But I think this reads more naturally as a defense of his apostolic authority on some level. They did not like his instructions about pagan temples. And one way to push back was to claim that he wasn't legitimate as an apostle. Here's his verse 3 defense. He is indeed an apostle. That's the idea of the question. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? So the good news that Paul preached led to their conversion, is much of his point here in verse 2. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. That is, as he preached the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit opened their eyes, unplugged their ears, allowed them to see the truth of this message, and they responded and we're born again. This is the indication of Paul's legitimacy. And they can compare that with all the other apostles. Am I not an apostle? I am. You are the seal of my apostleship. You are the evidence of my preaching and its legitimacy. Now in verse 3 he says then, this is my defense to those who would examine me. I take this verse more with verses 1 and 2. The ESV obviously takes it with what follows. But in verses 1 and 2, Paul's defense against those who deny Christ's call on his life is met. That's the defense, verses 1 and 2. So he's just initiated that idea, defending his apostleship. Paul labors then through verse 14 to explain that he fully knows his rights as an apostle. So there's, there's a, he doesn't even know how apostle works. 
He doesn't understand how the traveling philosopher works. I don't think there's any way we go verses 4 to 14 without this being a really big problem between him and the church. So let me at great length, Paul says, explain to you that I know my rights. I know them very well. And he's going to really belabor this point. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Yes, I know I have the right to compensation as a traveling teacher. I get that. I don't think he's talking here about food in the pagan temples because he includes drink here, which would be different than how he's developed it. He's just saying, I know my rights to be supported, to be fed by the work that I'm doing as an apostle. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Other apostles, the four brothers of Jesus, Peter, all traveled with their wives. That is, their wives also were supported as they went with them along the way to proclaim the gospel. Paul knows his right. He knows this is his right. If he had a wife, she also would be owed support as they traversed the Mediterranean world. Verse 6. You see him continuing on this line, just from different angles. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He knows neither he nor Barnabas were required to work with their hands for a living. And remember, in the Roman context, only the lower classes worked. Work was for slaves, really, ultimately. If you were somebody, other people did your work. Paul and Barnabas are working with their hands is somewhat offensive and certainly doesn't seem like an apostle would do something like that, the Corinthians thought. Yes, they did not receive compensation from the Corinthian church, but they knew they had a right to. That's not the point. Verse 7, I get this, says Paul. I understand. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? These self-evident illustrations from everyday life demonstrate that Paul gets the point. Soldiers do not pay for their uniforms. Farmers eat the grapes that they tend. Shepherds benefit from the flock. But is Paul's knowledge based entirely just on observation of life? He goes deeper. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Is that just this observation that I'm making here? Is that it? Now, does not the law say the same? Verse 9, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So Paul is dipping in here to Deuteronomy 25, God's law to Israel. Harvesters would cut down the wheat and often it was piled in the center of the threshing floor and then pitched onto the floor. Their oxen would walk over it, often pulling a sledge that would separate the grain from the husks. As they were led about, uh, they would crush that grain and then as that, those oxen are doing that, they would often bend down and eat, very natural for them. And so one might put a muzzle on the ox and not allow the ox to eat. 
Now, Paul, looking at Deuteronomy 25, I think understanding the whole context of the passage, realizes this is not all about animal husbandry. Does God care? Is he concerned about animals? He is. And the fact of how we care for them indicates much about our own heart understanding as we deal with animals that are weak, that are under our control. God is concerned about animals. But that's not the point of Deuteronomy 25. And I think really, if we understand this properly, we look at the muzzling of the ox, what's probably in the background is you're renting an ox, you're borrowing an ox, it belongs to someone else, so while it's working for you, you don't let it eat any of your grain. What you're doing is harming the ox, but what you're doing is also harming another individual. It's economic justice that's, in, that's the thought of Deuteronomy 25. How are you treating people fairly? It's what's really motivating God's word to Israel there, not just simply care for the ox. That's why Paul puts it this way. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, yes, he is, but not ultimately. He wants justice in the way that you deal with things. As one commentator put it, it's probably something like when you rent a tool from that, the rental place, they want it returned in its original condition, right? They don't want it misused. You're free to borrow it, but don't misuse it. So it is with the oxen. You're free to borrow the oxen, to rent the oxen, but don't misuse it. That's the whole point. I get it, says the apostle. I have every right to be compensated for my labors. Even the scriptures teach this. People who work have a right to pay. And this principle applies to those who then minister God's word to God's people. Verse 11 He draws that implication now. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So there's others, other apostles that they knew, others who were ministering to them. They were receiving income from the Corinthians. Doesn't Paul have that same right, being the one who brought the gospel to them in the first place? Of course, he gets this. But here's the key. Now we get to where he's really driving, verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We have not made use of this right. I'd like us to observe something here from the text. Notice that statement in verse 12. We've not made use. We've chosen not to exercise this right. Look down at verse 15. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights. And then verse 18 at the end. So, that, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is clearly what's driving him. Three references to, I've not insisted on my right. I've laid down my rights in order to proclaim the gospel. Now in verse 12 he says, so as not to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it, return to it in just a moment. But first here it's like something just like the light bulb goes off in Paul's mind. He said, wait a minute, I got another example. Let me come back to this later, but let me say this, verse 13. 
Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. What's his point? Go to any temple anywhere, the temple in Jerusalem, go to your pagan temples here, any priest who's offering sacrifices, I mean, we don't, we don't get this, we pick up our meat at the store, like, you know, you have to lift it up and put it in the cart. Priests that were sacrificing meat, that was really hard, dirty, nasty, sweaty work. And every priest anywhere doing all that work of offering an animal sacrifice was compensated with some of the meat. Right? Anywhere that you go, and indeed, biblically speaking, that was true of the priests in Israel. So he gets this, this other idea of just supporting his point, and then he can even go to Jesus' own words. Our Lord, verse 14, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Probably drawing from this statement in Jesus' teaching of his disciples as they were going out on mission, he said, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Receive shelter and receive food and drink. Why? Because the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Stay in that house, receiving what they give. So I think the point there is the first people that receive you, stay there and be content. Don't look over your shoulder at the neighbor's house and say, I'd rather stay over there. This isn't about staying in the nicest place and getting the best food. This is about surviving from village to village as you proclaim the gospel. But here's the key. The laborer deserves his wages. Why does Eden Baptist Church liberally compensate our staff elders? Why, for that matter, do we collect a gift for our non-staff elders in December? It is this teaching of the Lord. It is this direction from Christ. And Paul actually puts these very two ideas together. I lost it. Didn't work. All right, let's go there. We've got to turn there. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders, I'm 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So here Paul putting those two ideas together from that passage in Deuteronomy 25 and from the words of the Lord, he is saying that it is right for a church to compensate those who labor in teaching the word of God to the congregation, who pastor the church. So this is why we do this. It's not just, it, it, there could be a thousand wrong reasons for it, but there's a right reason for it, and this is that right reason. Paul has already made this point in verse 12, but now he's going to drive home this idea to his readers. So it's a very simple process here. Paul is an apostle of Christ, Apostles have the right to receive pay for their labors. As he's mentioned in verse 12, and now we'll stress, Paul lays down his rights to advance the gospel. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights. 
nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I want, I want to make this clear also. I'm not saying this so that you begin to support me. You know that. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. So Paul's overarching message is this. I'm laying down the rights that I know that I have. Don't misunderstand. I'm not seeking compensation. But I'd rather die. Death would be better than to lose this boast. You say, really? I mean, he's pretty, it might be hyperbole, but he's very passionate about this. What boast is he talking about? Maybe a better word would be glory or exultation, boasting in the best sense of the term. Here it is that we go back to the obstacle of verse 12. Here's the deal. It was Paul's missionary practice not to take compensation from the people that he was evangelizing. Did you catch that there in the reading today from 2 Corinthians? He did take money from others to support his evangelistic efforts, but when he landed in a town, he never wanted to take any compensation from anyone that he was proclaiming the gospel to. The Corinthians, as he came to Corinth, proclaiming the gospel, they desperately wanted him to take their money. But reading a bit between the lines, there's a little conjecture here, I think, certainly. But there would have been two outcomes to that. Number one, unbelievers in the city of Corinth could very easily draw the conclusion that Paul is here, like every other teacher, to get money. He's just here to get our money out of our pockets and into his. That's one problem. What's the second problem? He receives patronage from the Corinthian church and they would naturally see themselves as holding a position of influence with him. Not going to happen. And the only thing, as hard as it is, that Paul needs to do is lay down his right to compensation. I'm going to set that right aside so as to proclaim the free gospel of Christ free of charge. Again, Paul did receive support. I mean, he's got to eat. He's got to be clothed. He has to find shelter. And he found that through his own labors with his own hands at various places. He also found it as others supported him, as in the reading from 2 Corinthians. The Macedonian churches were sending money to him in Corinth to support his labors there. Always not paying just for himself, but for his team. But when it came to proclaiming the gospel on fresh soil, he was going to do that free of charge. And he'd rather die than have that taken away. There's a principle here that we apply. We don't think a lot about it, but here's a good place to stop and think about it. The principle, this is why what we're reading here, what we're seeing here, this is why we do not charge visitors tickets to get in here on Sunday morning. It, it would never sell anyway, but we, we, we are never going to charge a visitor to come in among us. But more seriously, this is why no offering taken in this church is ever imposed, demanded, or cajoled. Never. It is only free will giving. 
It is laid down freely and willingly by those anxious to serve Christ's cause. Do we see it here? The Macedonian churches, out of their poverty, are saying, please let us support this cause. We want to put our money into the service of Christ to spread the gospel. Please accept this from us. But not the people to whom he was ministering. It was laid down freely. It was laid down willingly with anxiousness to spread the cause of Christ. Another principle that we gain here and apply in our assemblies, this is one reason we support missionaries. So they can preach the free gospel freely. There's more to it than that, of course, in our day. But once that church is established, then those new believers should be taught the joy of free will giving. You see where we're at today with our prayers for the farmers? They're taking the word to Laotians who have not heard the gospel. There has been a response, and God is using this outreach, this ministry, to reach such people. Can you imagine if Jeremy went into that area, into that town, village, and said, I've got some things to teach you, but please know we're selling tickets. Our support of the farmers allows them to go in and say, there is nothing here but what is free from Christ. It's a beautiful relationship. Then, if that church is formed, as these baptisms are now scheduled, and someday that church is formed, it will be important to teach 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. It will be important that those believers learn how to see their wealth as belonging to God and put into play for the cause of the kingdom. But that's later. That's sanctification. That's Christian maturity. That's never on the front side as we share the free gospel of Jesus Christ freely. Now, Paul hastens to explain that he lays down his rights to compensation as a slave. 16 and 17 are a bit tricky, but I think that's what he's saying. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, I have compensation, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. I think the meaning, though difficult to discern, is that the idea is that if he preached the gospel of his own initiative, as is the case with almost all preachers, then compensation would naturally follow. That would be his reward. But due to his call on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Paul is under utter compulsion, not as one who is making a living by preaching the gospel, but more as one who is a slave of Christ. Slaves don't get paid. They're supported in their work, but they have a stewardship to fulfill for their master. That's who I am. That's what I'm doing. I see myself as a slave of all, and I lay down any right in order to pro proclaim the gospel. Paul is demonstrating here the truth that commentator Michael Green notes so ably. He says, true freedom is not license to do what I want, but liberation to do what I ought. 
True freedom is not license to do what I want, but liberation to do what I ought. And here is what Paul ought to do as far as he is concerned. And this is his reward, his compensation. Verse 18, there is compensation indeed. This is it. What then is my reward? What is my pay is what he means. Verse 18, that in my, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. It's a shame we stop here uh, and not move into verse 19 and following. But there's so much meat there. We'll pick that up, Lord willing, next week. But that's where he's headed. I am a servant of all. I've laid down my right. 12, 15, 18. I know my rights. I lay them down willingly. For the cause of the gospel, in Christian maturity... His ministry had become, as one has said, a living paradigm of the gospel itself. He laid down his right to compensation. He laid down his right to some ease in his work in order to do what was best to win them to Christ. Now, our world is so very different than this world. Our partnership in the gospel takes on so very different forms than is true here. This patron-client thing, meat offered at idol, at, at idol temples, this is not our world. But in this day of such overemphasis on individual rights, in this day, every bit as much as in that day, the gospel of Christ will not go forward apart from God's people laying down rights. And this is to emulate our Savior Philippians chapter 2, he took on the form of a servant. He laid down his reputation that he rightly deserved in order to take on flesh and to die in our place. For us, it is nothing of this kind of magnitude. But that orientation to life is what should begin to mark the people of God. That we don't fight for our rights, fight for our freedoms as such, but that we are willing to lay them down. We will not proclaim the good news unless we lay down the right of respect. The right of our time. The rights that we have in our minds to fair treatment. And we will not see the gospel go into the farthest reaches of the earth without some laying down their right to a career here. To life in the familiarity of their homeland. To lay down the right to be near family, or the right to worship with their home church in order to plant another. As slaves of Christ, may we come to know that proclaiming the transforming power of the gospel is our highest calling in this world. And may it be clear to the lost who are around us that we are living a cruciform life, that what the one who's pulling the strings is not Western individualism, but the Lord Jesus Christ. That we're laying down our lives for the cause of Jesus. May no unbeliever that you or I know in our context ever confuse the highest goal of our lives 
as the same as theirs. I live just for here. I live for now. I have my rights, and I protect them. May they see in your life and mine, there's someone willing to lay down his or her rights for a cause that's bigger than self. This world is not our home. So its rights and privileges are temporary measures that we should hold lightly. To die is gain. And until then, the gospel enterprise is our highest mission. It is right for each of us to fulfill all sorts of mundane responsibilities day by day. This is God's call upon each of our lives. It is right for us to pursue many legitimate pleasures in this world of wonder. But at the end of the day, finding Christ's sheep and getting people to glory in the only real point that we're, is the only real point of us being here. And in that orientation, then, we give ourselves to what is before us this week. We give ourselves to inviting to this place children and their families, many of whom we trust will come open to hear the gospel of Christ, to lay down some of our rights in a very small way, to take on some difficulties that we might see the gospel proclaimed and so to relate to one another as an assembly in love that's where he starts in chapter 8 and where he moves here in chapter 9 is that we would look at one another as the one rescued by Christ and that we would be willing to lay down rights for one another in love the Corinthians were not catching this point very well at all and they're running headlong into an apostle who insists that they get it. Bring your life in line with the Christ who laid down his rights to rescue his people. May it be clear that we are, by God's grace, getting that point. Let's pray. Father, we pray to that end. We ask to that end. We know that we are self-centered to the very core of our flesh. Every one of us is quick to discern our rights and to defend them. Lord, I don't know how this applies to us individual, individually and how this may apply to us as a church moving into the future. But I pray that you would teach us how to lay aside our rights, to not insist upon what we could insist upon and demand what we could demand, but rather to live a life of maturity that is willing to let go, to not hold tightly to this world and its privileges, but to genuinely invest ourselves as we give away time, as we give away our capacities as we give away financial resources to advance the cause of Christ. May we continue to rightly compensate. May we continue to take on those who take the gospel to other lands and allow them to minister the free gospel without price. 
But Lord, may you teach us then how to lay down all of our resources for your cause. Move within this body. Help us to see. And perhaps some are even now really struggling with some right they know they need to leave alone and let drop to the ground. Lord, move within us. And may we emulate our Savior, who though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that through his poverty, we might be rich. And Lord, I pray in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior. I pray that they would recognize that there is nothing that we're selling. Nothing that they must achieve. But that they must, by your grace, come to trust in the saving power of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. I pray, Father, that you'd bring them to understand Revelation 22. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Lord, we thank you for the price that Jesus paid. That he gave away all asking of us nothing but to turn from the sin that is destroying us and to receive his saving grace freely. I pray that you do that work in those who know not Christ and draw us all to our Savior, in whose name we pray.